Hi, I'm John Bryce. I live in Albemarle County, Virginia, where my wife is running for school board. She's a frustrated mom who lost all faith that our school board actually had our children's best interests at heart. And this is her story. Albemarle County schools had a reputation for strong academics for many years, but that's no longer the case. What happened? We are not the district that we once were. We used to really focus on academics. We used to focus on academic rigor. And that doesn't always mean academic excellence. It doesn't mean that like all of our students are going to go to Ivy League schools. It just means that we were focusing on strong academics and making sure that our students were built up in that. And we've lost the focus on that over the years, and we're now seeing the results of that. When I talk to people, they still think that we are the best school district in the area. And the fact is that we're not, and we haven't been for a very long time. Louisa has been outperforming us on the SOLs, the Standards of Learning Tests, they've been outperforming us since 2014, every single year. Wow. Nelson County just outperformed us this past year. Um, between 2014 and 2019, I believe, the following counties all outperformed us. Augusta, Fluvanna, um, Orange, Rockingham for a few of those years and and Louisa, as I said. So we simply are not the best in the region. And while it's not important to be the best, that's not the only measure of a school district. It does beg the question, what are we doing differently? You know, like, what are we doing differently than the surrounding counties? Is it just, uh, is it just the surrounding counties that are eating our lunch? No, it's not the surrounding counties. So I've been digging into the most recent SOL scores that were just released a couple weeks ago. And it's very telling to look at our scores compared to statewide scores. And one thing that I'm particularly interested in is elementary reading scores. I think that, and this is, you know, like when I'm out talking to people, when I'm canvassing, I think everybody gets that teaching kids to read, like that should be our number one job as a school system. If we're not teaching them to read, we are failing at our first job. So um, third grade is the first time that students take the SOL test. And when we look at our third grade reading scores, they've been going down for the past few years. Um, And so when we look at all students in third grade in our county, last year, only 64% of them passed the reading test. So that means 36% failed the reading test. When I tell people that, they're like, no, not now, Marl. But yes, here, 36% of all of our third graders failed the SOL reading test last year. And um, that's two points below the state average. It gets worse when you look at when you look at minority groups. So when you look at economically disadvantaged students, they only passed the reading test last year at a rate of 35%. And that is 17 points below the state average. Our black students passed at a rate of only 31%, which is 22 points below the state average. That is staggering to me. I mean, we're failing these populations. And they're the exact populations that our district says it's so focused on. But the third grade 
reading scores for black students have gone down 29 points in the past two years. So two years ago, 60% of those students were passing the reading test. Last year, it was only 31%. That's just like a staggering decline. Okay, so the pandemic obviously had a major impact. How has ACPS performed during the post-COVID recovery period? Well, first, before I say how we've performed post-COVID, I do want to say that uh, there's, there seems to be this attitude like, yes, I know the pandemic, you know, COVID really, really hurt our scores and students are, are behind. It wasn't just COVID. This is part of a trend. We have been pre- trending down for quite some time, so they can't just blame it on COVID. Uh, now, since COVID, when you look at scores, when, when we compare ourselves to surrounding counties, we didn't take as much of a hit as other counties did during COVID. We didn't see as much of a drop in our scores. I I don't know why that is. My guess would be that we are a more affluent county than some of the surrounding counties. And so parents here were able to compensate for, um, you know, what was lost during virtual learning with tutors or pods or whatever. That would be my guess. Regardless, we didn't have as much of a dip in our scores during COVID. But since COVID, all of the surrounding counties started to recover. So from 2021 to 2022, uh, all of the surrounding counties started to recover. They started to rebound from COVID, yet we did not. We continued to decline that next year. And that's something that I've never heard anybody at the district level talk about. I don't hear any curiosity about like, whoa, you know, <laughs> what what are we doing differently? And maybe we should look around and and try to emulate what other counties are doing because it seems to be working better than what we're doing. Okay, so it sounds like things began moving in the wrong direction well before the pandemic and are only getting worse now. Why is that? Uh, a, a number of years ago, we moved from... You can even look at the, um, I don't know if it's called the mission statement or what, but, you know, essentially the mission of the district, it used to be academic excellence. And now it's a whole host of other things. And I mean, really, if you were to read it, like you could, you could miss that it was about a school district because it doesn't mention (laughs) academics very much. Uh. And that being the case, I mean, you can see the results of that. You can see that and how we've, um, the resulting policies are things like a changed grading policy, um, deleveling of classes, hiring more people in central office as opposed to hiring people at the school level, you know, like hiring more reading specialists. Instead of that, we're hiring more people at the district level. So with all of that loss of focus on academic rigor, this all of our students are suffering. It's not just the high performance students that suffer when you don't focus on excellence anymore. It's really everybody across the board. Okay, going back to the going back to reading, uh, the district has a has a program that I think is called Being a Reader. Uh, let's hear about that because that's an interesting story. Right, um, Being a Reader is a program that I believe was purchased in about 2019. At least what I hear from teachers is that's when the majority of them were trained on it. So it's a pretty new program. 
it was announced recently that it does not meet the Virginia Department of Education's standards for being evidence-based. So there's a lot of talk right now on the science of reading and um, returning to phonics-based instruction, and our program does not meet those standards. When, when teachers tell me about the program, uh, they often use the phrase, it's not the worst, like it's not, which is, you know, such a glowing testimony of it. They're like, I mean, there's some phonics in it, but uh, teachers and teachers said from the beginning that they they weren't really jazzed about this program. But, uh, you know, they were told, nope, you just got to implement it with fidelity, you know, keep using this program. So now we've been told by the state that we can no longer use this program. When the district got word that they that the program did not meet the criteria, their response was to ask for an exemption. <laughs> so rather than saying, yeah, you're right, actually, we, we do need a better program. We should have listened to our teachers. They said, nah, can we keep using the program that clearly isn't serving students and that teachers haven't liked from the beginning? Which I think is a pretty disturbing response. Let's talk about deleveling. So a lot of people might not know what deleveling means. What is it? Deleveling refers to the practice of um, not having multiple levels with within a subject. So while our middle schools used to have, I think, four levels of math, we now just have two. Our language arts is no longer leveled at all. They have deleveled it completely. So all students take the same language arts. And people advocate for this because they say that ultimately it will increase minority enrollment in advanced classes if everybody is taught together. But teachers are very frustrated and parents are very frustrated with the practice of deleveling because what they find is that it holds back the high-performing kids. So, you know, they can't, they're not reaching their potential. They're not thriving as much as they would because they're not given the the challenge that they otherwise would be. And it's also not serving the kids who are struggling in these subjects because the teacher isn't able to, to meet their needs the way that they otherwise would. So, you know, teachers say like, whereas I used to have, um, I, I used to really be able to like sit down and help my struggling students. I can't do that anymore because I'm also trying to cater to kids who are like four steps ahead of them. And teachers are like, it's just, you know, it's impossible. I can't possibly cater to this wide range in a single classroom. And, you know, one high school teacher told me that he can now only teach about 80% of the content that he used to because we also don't have prerequisites for getting into classes anymore. So students in his class no longer have to have taken certain science courses to be admitted into his class, which means that the first part of the quarter he's spending um, teaching content that in previous years his students already would have known. And, and the thing is that it's been tried and it's failed in in other places. And the school board has been given this evidence. You know, they, they've they've been sent 
studies and articles showing that, listen, this was tried in New York and it failed. This, this was tried in San Francisco and it failed, but they are still going ahead with it. Why do you think that is? Uh, I can't say why that is. I, I mean, I think that there's an alarming resistance to looking at data. And I think that they are um, so unaccustomed to anybody pushing back on ideas that they haven't really had to defend their ideas or their policies. They, they just are, you know, kind of dismissive of people, but there's nobody actually in a position of authority in the district that's pushing back on any of this. So they don't they don't have to research it for themselves. They don't they don't have to dig into it and 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 then ultimately find, oh yeah, there actually isn't great evidence on this. Meg, what are some other policies that have changed and, and moved us in the wrong direction away from uh, academic rigor? All right. So deleveling is definitely one. Another one is a cap on advanced placement courses. So the the current policy is that students can only take nine AP courses and they can't start them until their sophomore year. Now, this is an example of something that I think I, I can understand and even get behind the reasoning behind it. So I, if I understand correctly, the reason they capped the number of APs is that we know that there's a mental health crisis in adolescents and teens, and uh, you know they were trying not to feed into that. You know we don't want a bunch of like stressed out students, so they capped the number of APs. But I, I think that's short sighted, and I also think it doesn't it doesn't leave room for the kids who can handle it. Like there there are some kids who can handle. Um, you know, 12, 13, 14 APs. Now, those kids are the exception to the rule, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that there should be a rule against it. You know, those, sh- those kids, it's not just about um, them, you know, building up their transcript and being more competitive. If a kid wants to do something more rigorous and wants to challenge herself more, why are we keeping her from that? And the other thing about APs is that um, it, it used to be that students could take so many APs that actually they would place out of a lot of stuff in college and graduate early. That's if you're really, economically di- dis- disadvantaged and trying to save money on college, what's a good way to save money on right, college? Exactly. Like three years versus four years of college is a big difference given how insane college tuition is right now. Right. So we're keeping students from that. We're keeping students from pursuing things that really interest them. I heard from one student who said, you know, if I hadn't been able to take this is a student who graduated before they capped the number of APs. And she said, if I hadn't been able to take the classes that I did, I would not have been a competitive candidate for the program that I got into. It just, it wouldn't have happened. Wow. Okay. Um, let's talk about grading policies because there's been some big changes in that area. I think largely as a result of COVID, I could be wrong about that, but we've heard from a lot of parents and teachers that are, you know, not too happy about some of these changes. So tell us about those. The grading changes are 
uh, part of it was in response to COVID, just being more lax about everything. But part of it is also an equity measure. So they they call it equity grading. One of the one part of the policy is something that they call eliminating zeros. So teachers can no longer give a zero on an assignment. The lowest score that a teacher can give on an assignment is 50 out of 100. That includes if the student didn't turn it in. So don't show up, don't turn it in, still get 50. Still get a 50. I I recently spoke with a, a teacher who gave one argument that I did find compelling in, in favor of this policy. And he was saying, we don't want to create a situation where kids can't b- bounce back. So we don't want, you know, if the kid had like, um, you know, four homework assignments and got a zero on one, statistically, it becomes very difficult for that student to bounce back from that. They'd have to get A's on all the others and, and still wouldn't get an A for the semester. So I, I do understand that. And I do find that to be a compelling argument for this. But I think that it needs to be it needs to be tweaked. So I saw that Fairfax County, for example, is now saying, okay, um, you can't give below a 50 on an assignment that a student turned in and worked on, but you can give a zero if a student never turned it in. So in my mind, like, you know, there could be some compromise on on that part of the policy. As a teacher, I, I, don't, I don't like giving a 50 if a student never turned something in, didn't show up to class. I mean, really never showed any effort because I don't think that does justice to the kid who worked his butt off to get a 75. You know, there are a lot of students I know who are C students, but they worked really hard to get that C. I had a student when I was a TA at UVA who had an F at the beginning of the semester and like came to office hours every week and worked really hard and ended up getting a C. And she was really proud of that C as she should have been because she she worked so hard to get from her like 63 up to her 76, you know? And, and when you give a 50 for doing literally nothing, it doesn't honor the work of the hardworking C student. Um, There's probably no colleges in America where you can pay tuition, not show up, not turn anything in and still get a 50. Right. Well, (laughs) along those lines, I'm in a couple teacher groups, um, like, um, you know, college educator groups, and I've seen a growing number of teachers asking advice. Sorry, I should say professors or instructors asking advice on how to deal with students who are disproportionately stressed out by due dates and grades. We are seeing like a generation of kids come into college who don't know how to handle just like the, you know, the reality of being a student, that there are due dates and that um, studying matters, things like that. So, you know, there's got to be a balance between being compassionate towards students and still giving them a chance to work hard and recover from a mistake or a bad grade or whatever. A balance between that and then also teaching kids how to cope with stress, you know, teaching them like how to deal with a deadline and not totally unravel over it. Another part of the equity grading policy is that uh, students can um, have an unlimited retake on exams. They can turn in assignments late. 
Um, and those things, I think, especially turning in assignments late, that is a huge logistical burden on teachers that we have no business doing to them. I mean, we can't tell teachers, you have to accept things at any point. And, um, you know, as, as a teacher, like you've got to space out your grading and know, all right, well, I have, you know, this homework assignment due and then I'll, I'll grade that and then I'll have the next exam due and I'll grade that. If it just piles on all at the end of the quarter or the end of the semester, how do you expect a teacher to deal with that? Um, and, and then as far as unlimited retakes of exams, uh, I, I like the idea of a student being able to work hard at something again, to learn the content better and to show mastery of it. If they want to work hard uh, and, and study for an exam again, I think that's good. And that's not something that we should discourage. But what has happened with the unlimited retakes of exams is that students who used to be pretty motivated, organized students are now saying to their parents, like, you know, when the parents say, don't you have an exam tomorrow? The student says, yeah, but I don't, I don't have to study for it. I can just retake it. That's not the attitude. That's not the habit that we want to encourage in students. We really shouldn't. And I know that this past year, at least at Western, some teachers have pushed back on the policy and had some some really good modifications. And they've said, okay, you can retake this exam, but only once you've redone these three homework assignments, which is basically making the kids, um, you know, like make sure that they've mastered, that they've really studied and mastered something before they can retake the exam. What do you want to say about the widening achievement gap? Yeah, so um, this is something that our district has rightly been focused on for a few years. And it is the driving force behind many of their, or all really, of their recent policies. We do need to address the achievement gap. It It is very bad in Albemarle County. But the measures that we've put in place to address it have been in place for a few years now, and we can see that they're not working. So at what point will somebody admit, okay, you know, we had good intentions, but clearly this isn't working. And last year, the district hired a consulting firm to come in and observe classrooms and, you know, look at um, curricula and things like this. It was an instructional audit. And the purpose of it was to get at why we have a growing achievement gap. And it, it was pretty frustrating to see them pay money to hire somebody for that when I know so many teachers who were like, uh, ask, like, ask me, mm-hmm. I can tell you, I can tell you what we're doing wrong. And, and this is what's known as the Bellwether Report, correct? Yes. The Bellwether Report was the instructional audit. And it showed a lot of things that um, many teachers have been saying for years. They've been saying, we need better professional development. We need better instructional materials. Um, you know, it, it basically came back with things that the district should have known if it had been listening to its teachers. All right. 
And really, I think when we talk about the achievement gap and we talk about deleveling and equity grading, and th- those things are really focused at middle school and high school and how to eliminate the achievement gap at those levels. And one problem I have is is any any policy that says it is going to increase minority enrollment in advanced classes. And I did notice that phrase in the Bellwether report and, and it bothered me because it raises a red flag to me when somebody talks about increasing enro- merely enrollment in advanced classes. That should not be the goal. The goal should be increasing minority success in advanced classes, enrollment and success, but not just enrollment. You know, if you're increasing enrollment, basically you're making your numbers look better, but you're not actually helping. You're not actually solving the problem. And when we talk about the achievement ba- gap, what I think a lot of it comes down to is early intervention. So we have, you know, uh, 69% of our Black third graders not passing the reading test. That's pretty hard to recover from. K through third is this critical period. And if you don't do right by kids during that period, it becomes monumentally harder for them to recover from that. Kids who aren't reading fluently by the end of third grade are four times as likely to drop out of school later in life. So we really need to focus on early intervention in in those early grades. We need more reading specialists. We need more math specialists so that those kids can get help before it's too late, you know, but before it, it's going to be such an uphill battle for them. I, I heard that, so the PALS test is, is um, another reading test that our district uses, and they, they use the scores on that to identify struggling students who need intervention. And from what I understand, we have so many students whose PALS scores indicate that they need reading intervention, but we do not have enough staff to help those students. So it is not uncommon for a school to have to say, like, you know, tell a teacher, okay, I see that you have eight students whose scores indicate that they need reading support. We don't have enough staff for that. So only, you know, only the bottom four are going to get support. That is, that's where we're failing. Like that is the start of, of the problem is early elementary and struggling students not getting the support that they need and teachers not getting the support that they need to help those struggling students. No amount of deleveling, no grading policies that are going to make up for a kid who didn't get the support that he needed in first grade. I know one afternoon after you were out door knocking uh, and talking to folks, um, there was a powerful story that you told me about an immigrant who who were totally letting down someone who who needs the exact type of intervention and help that you're talking about. Tell that story so listeners can understand what these people are going through. Yeah, I so... I, I was out door knocking. Um, this was in the Holly Mead district. And um, Holly Mead is one of our strong elementary schools. So they're in a good district. I knocked on the door and it was, it was like around lunchtime. It was noonish. And a little girl answered. And, um, and I actually had our daughter with me. So 
they were chatting for a little bit. And the, and the girl said, hold on, I'll, I'll go get my dad. He's just waking up. And uh, he came to the door and he was, he had just rolled out of bed because he had been working an overnight shift, I think at an assisted living facility, I want to say. And uh, he said that he works that shift because his daughter needs um, a tutoring and reading and she can't get it at school. So he's working a second job right now to afford her tutoring. And they were the sweetest family and like really sweet, bubbly, precocious little girl. But when I think of the immigrants who moved here, by and large, they moved here for educational opportunities for their kids. And this man is working a second job so that his daughter can get the tutoring that she needs because it's not available at school. And and when I say this stuff, I'm not, it's not a slight on the teachers because the teachers are aware of the problem and nobody, nobody gets into teaching who doesn't really care about this stuff. The teachers care deeply about this and they're broken up about it. And they've been asking for years for more support. And, uh, you know, like the, these are the families that we are failing. And, and those teachers, they're asking for what? They're asking for more more reading specialists? Yes, more reading specialists in the school. More reading specialists who can come in and work directly with children who need more support. They also want better instructional materials. So, um, you know, better books not being a reader not <laughs> not being a reader that's yeah better yeah. curricula but also to not have their hands tied by curriculum that's requiring books that they know are boring to the children recently acps got rid of some of its best programs programs that were really working talk about that another thing that we had been doing really well. So like another big change in the district that has taken away from academic rigor is that we closed the academies. Our district used to have four academies and, and they were by application only. One of them was Mesa. That was probably the most popular academy, like, you know, math, science, engineering academy. Um, another, I think was environmental sciences. I think, I think that was at Western. The academies were very popular. They were really well done. A teacher that I spoke with recently told me that when he first started teaching in the district, he looked at what was being done in the Mesa program and he was blown away. He was like, I mean, it was so amazing what these kids were learning. And um, he was like, I mean, it would have been, for me as a high schooler, that would have been just a dream to have opportunities like that. And Kids who were in those programs got into some really wonderful programs for college. And then at one point, they stopped requiring application into the programs. And um, and then the programs just slowly went downhill. And last year, they closed the programs. And they are now replacing them with what they're, call- what they're calling career learning communities, CLCs. And these communities are, um, they're supposed to be an alternative to the academies. But first of all, 
Most people simply are not interested in them. The students would have, I think, two or three days a week at a different school for whatever CLC they they were in. And then they'd be back at their home school the other days of the week. So students don't want to do it because they're like, it's so much back and forth. And I wouldn't feel at home, I don't think, in either place. And and, and we'll talk about we'll talk about buses later, but right. it's not like, even never mind that. how right. logistically we would get these kids moved around between these places. Exactly, they they promise transportation to to and from all of these, and I, I don't see how that's ever going to work. But um, from a teacher's perspective, what I've heard is that the CLCs just aren't providing the level of the level of rigor that was found in the academies. So it's it's not it's not an alternative, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not a good replacement for the academies. People miss those. And it's a shame that, that they were taken away. Actually, who I hear about the academies from most are parents of kids who graduated from the academies. So in, in my canvassing, I've met a lot of parents who said, yeah, my kid got the best education in ACPS, you know, she went to Mesa and, and they would just tell me these like great stories about their experience. And, and then the parent would say, I can't believe they got rid of this. And it, it, it's something that we were doing so well. And it, it, it's unbelievable to me that they, that they ended that. I'm John Bryce, and you've been listening to my wife, Meg Bryce, on the Meg Bryce for School Board podcast, which is, of course, paid for and authorized by Meg Bryce for School Board. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll continue listening and text this episode to at least three of your friends. Meg would be honored to earn your vote and grateful for even the smallest donation, which can be made by visiting megforschoolboard.com. Check the show notes for links, including charts to visualize much of the ACPS data Meg mentioned earlier, as well as a recording of the Crozet Town Hall Candidate Forum, where you can watch how Meg stacks up against her opponent. Early voting is already underway, and election day is November 7th. Vote for Meg to get ACPS back on track. <laughs>